Hello, welcome back to the Comic Books Matter podcast, where we talk about the impact of comics. I'm your host, Jesse, and with me today is a very special guest, nominated for Ignatz for Writing, writer of Heavenly Blues, Griffin, and Renegade, uh, Renegade Rule at Dark Horse. It's uh, Ben Khan. Ben, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Um, Ben reached out to me and gave me all of their books uh, for Griffin, and over the last week and a half, I've just tried to binge them when I had free time and I have to just start out saying it was a lot of fun reading that like I was surprised even though the issues are very short they're very impactful I'm so I'm really glad and yeah that was always um part of the cha- the fun challenge of writing Griffin was packing as much story as I can into the as like as tight those as tight as possible uh packages it, it it's funny with the with the length of the book how like how much you basically drag everybody along to different locations but it feels so fluid it was definitely you know kind of trying to want to have a bit of that kind of star trek episodic sense so not just so you know still have them go off to different locales go on different kinds of adventures uh but definitely that kind of half issue uh length um you know, going into it, I just kind of thought, okay, I'll kind of write it as normal issues and I'll just, you know, break it up. But just by the mere fact that I had to have like a big cliffhanger moment kind of every 11 pages instead of every 22 pages really just sped up uh, the pacing of the series in a way that was a lot of fun. And uh, last thing before we kind of pull back and go back to where you started and everything, the comedy mixed in with like how graphic the violence can get, but the comedy itself is so quick and sharp that I found myself laughing at moments that felt weird and awkward, but they were perfect. Oh, well, thank you. That is exactly the effect I was hoping for. Um, Making you feel weird about laughing at that was exactly <laughs> the goal of this. I'm pretty bad with uh, remembering character names. I always talk about this whenever me and my friends are talking about anime and stuff. And I'm just always bad at remembering names. Griffin, I remember because it's the name of the comic. It's but, handy. Uh, it's a handy way to remember it. Yeah. But the small, uh, the small fish alien that. Yes. Uh, Seti Stella. Yeah. The that, fish boy, alien fish boy engineer. That character is so good. <laughs> he came as a result of uh, Telika, the alien first officer character. Uh, was originally supposed to be a little more of this kind of voice of innocence, but uh, the character really kind of jumped out and became this much more of this sarcastic, uh, like this reluctantly sarcastic presence. So uh, I still wanted that really innocent foil to Mm -hmm. have, so I kind of added a new character to that original trio to get that innocent foil that Telika didn't develop into. And and there's a great aspect of him where he wants to be good no matter what. And as much as Griffin kind of tries to explain to him that like, there there's no such thing. <laughs> like there's no such thing as being good or evil or like, well, I mean, there's such things as being both, but like holy one or the other, everything's kind of chaotic and unfolds in its own way when you're in, in our anarchist like them. Uh, oh yeah. That would, especially he, with those chapters with study with Griffin and study Stella, Mm-hmm. I can show when you're making these the decisions as big as Griffin are, like when you're making decisions that de- determine the fate of like entire worlds forever, when you're, when you're asking like, oh, did we make things better? And the scale you're talking about is entire planets over the course of centuries. It's too big. Mm-hmm. It's too complex. It's too much for 
especially with how drastic and how quick Griffin acts to know if any of it's good or right. So uh, it was a lot of fun. And then, you know, it was a lot of fun writing Griffin, who uh, I always wanted people to never be quite sure or if they count as a hero or not, uh, but to always have fun following them. And I really just wanted to kind of hammer home that that's Griffin's philosophy is that they make a decision and they carry it out. And the consequences of that decision are too big to even factor into whether or not they make that decision. Yeah. So going back to more of kind of like your origin story in a way, what got you into comics as a medium in general as were you a fan originally or did you become a fan through writing them how did that start so yeah so i got started reading web comics as a kid and i did the you know usual 2000s teenage early you know mid 2000s teenager makes their own web comic and i had fun doing that it was you know um it was a sprite comic and it was extremely 2000s in all of the worst ways um but you know it was a lot of fun and it taught me a lot about writing and then uh when i got to college uh that was when i kind of really discovered uh print you know comic comics and you know superhero comics marvel dc and also uh you know vertigo and image um especially like old especially like old school vertigo like you know Hellblazer, Swamp Thing, Sandman, Watchmen, like all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, D- and then you know, Green Lant- Jeff Johns' Green Lantern, Grant Morrison's Batman, mm-hmm. 52. Um, and then from there, that really just kind of spiraled into this uh, obsession and love of comics. And then from there, it ended up just kind of being this hop, jump, and a skip away from making web comics to wanting to make uh print comics and you know not just uh you know not just these little four panel sprite comics but big bombastic pages with real artists and on your journey to like getting to that path was there one particular comic that just hit you and you're like i this is what i want to do i want to create what this was oh yeah for sure i wanted to um you know it was definitely sandman Mm -hmm. for me no Mm -hmm. doubt no doubt I, I can remember like exactly the booth I was sitting at in like the restaurant in Philadelphia, reading Sam and I said like I wonder if I could do something like this. And and what was it about Sam itself that captured you in that way? I mean, it's just an absolutely beautiful, haunting, gorgeous book. Um, its use of mythology, especially especially that kind of like that meta narrative, mm-hmm. really that sense of like you know, that kind of mythology about mythology, a comic book storytelling about comic book storytelling, uh, really just, and especially in such a moody, atmospheric package, it just hit me in a way that no story I'd ever read had ever hit me. Yeah, Sandman is one of those amazing pieces that come once a decade that I feel like just hits a way a generation in a way it impacts them it leaves like a crater of creativity and the the one part of Sandman that I always go back to think about how deep that Neil Gaiman like really worked in that was the whole Shakespeare uh storyline yes where you go with the Tempest yeah I think was the play if I remember correctly and how he spread that through the whole series and every time he went back to it it was a more impactful story and things com- compounded on each other through each arc yeah 
No, Sandman is, I mean, I think Sandman's absolutely one of the foundational texts for me. Um, from Sandman, did you find yourself trying to find more complex books and leaving kind of unsatisfied with the general um, industry? Or were you able to jump off of Sandman and keep jumping and finding those really impactful stories? Uh, I would say I was definitely able to find, you know, keep finding new stories, you know, uh, 100 Bullets, Preacher, Planetary, all real, I, were all things I read afterwards that really scratched that itch. And also just not, you know, um, falling over like all sorts of other comics, you know, it was very much a time when, you know, I really dove absolutely headfirst into uh, superhero comics. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, at the time, you know, DC had Black Ra- had uh, Blackest Night going on. Uh, Marvel had uh, Dark Rain, a book which at the time I scoffed at as being completely unrealistic, not knowing it was a solid deck. It was decade ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but overall, um, you know, it was a pre- like uh, those kind of late two thousands, early twenty tens were a great time in superhero you know comics so it was also like i was you know i was finding i was looking for the oscar bait but i was also just digging into as much like popcorn comics as i could find yeah and i think that's i think what you said there is really great because i feel like people get lost kind of in the like instead of oscar bait, like the eisner bait of um uh, mainstream comics in a lot of ways where if you go through some of that cheap popcorn filler books, you find some amazing gems of people really trying to use these characters to tell crazy impactful stories. I find that as, but that for as much as, you know, big two is just seen as like mainstream and stuff. I find that at any given time, both companies are putting out some books that just don't work at all. A lot of books that are per- that are like, that are really good and perfectly fine and enjoyable. And they're probably putting out one or two gems at any given time. Mm-hmm. So I find that, you know, when people say, oh, there's nothing to read, I'm like, you're not looking hard enough. There's yeah. so much to read. Between, between, this, between all the great voices that are in the mainstream and just how wild and crazy and wide the indie scene is now these days, if you can't find a comic you like, you like you're just not looking hard enough. Yeah, especially like uh, on my end, the indie scene has become a huge deal for me in the last few years. Um, mostly because Dark Horse, Oni, Scout, yeah, Vault, Boom. Like, Boom's I mean, doing crazy good work, like getting Boom's new been, voices yeah. out there. You know, um, Mad Cave just released a, a very exciting slate of books with a lot of great creators mm-hmm. uh, with stuff coming out. Ahoy's doing really good stuff that people won't touch. I mean, like. So yeah, so you know what, so there's like, there's a like, indie mainstream, I feel like there's just, you know, uh, before all this was happening, you know, before the comic shops closed down and couldn't go outside anymore, um, you know, I, you know, I'm a regular Wednesday warrior in the shops and I'd be walking out like 11, 12, 13 single issues and I didn't plan on buying that many that week, but that Mm -hmm. was how many books were out that I, I wanted to read. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, with my local shops open now, and I probably will be going this weekend at some point, being safe. And I know there's a few books that I saw. I'm like, oh, I forgot that was coming out. I think I'm going to add that to my list. Like, there's just so many interesting things that you don't see because it's so cluttered at times. But when you find them, it's a really nice find. Yeah. Um, going back to your writing, though, in the Griffin, um, how do you think um, Sandman kind of metaphor, like, 
I know every as creators, everything you read and consume kind of stays inside of you in a lot of ways. When um, when you got to Griffin, I know you talked about Star Trek influences, but what other influences were put in there? Did you pull anything from Sandman? Did you what else did you pull from? So it's with Sandman definitely had more influences in some of my urban fantasy stuff, like Heavenly Blues. Like I'd mm-hmm. say Heavenly Blues is probably the one that's the most uh, Sandman influence of its kind of. Um, you know, um, throw it all together and fit and make a cohesive whole out of like the afterlife. I was trying to do Griffin, uh, was a lot more of, you know, cow was a lot of like cowboy bebop, mm-hmm. uh, firefly. You definitely got, you know, so like you're, you know, Star Wars, Mass Effect, looking at just big fun space opera stuff. Um, a lot of, you know, um, some like Black Mirror. I mean, the Black, I mean, the Black Mirror episode of Star Trek was arguably a bigger influence than Star Trek itself. Yeah. Uh, and also just, um, you know, uh, stuff like, especially just the way I approach dialogue and just people bantering, you know, stuff like Archer and Rick and Morty is always very much, uh, you know, uh, that dialogue rhythm I'm always going for, like mm-hmm. very 30 Rock style, trying to get that very much, that very much, that kind of that, rapid pace trying to cram as many jokes in with um while keeping the plot as fast moving and as engaging as i can and and going to the concept of griffin like what drew you to the idea of your main character being so it, like it was like rick and morty like so rick like with its chaos but unlike rick cares more about the outcome of the chaos in some ways so in a lot of ways, so I absolutely, absolutely get uh, the comparison between Lila Griffin and Rick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where Lila Griffin really comes, where, uh, where Griffin really comes from is uh, they are really kind of an evolution of some of the characters that I worked on in that teenage webcomic I was telling you about. Yeah. Which was this very kind of, you know, 15 year old you know shitty 15 year olds idea of nihilism you know characters were just being like you know wanting murder and violence and just corruption and general assholery um but all you know very exaggerated and not taking it seriously and it's all pixelated so how like squicked out can anyone really be um when it's still when it's just stolen game boy advance sprites um but it was very much so kind of going back to that webcomic, it was that kind of sense of that pure, that sort of like that chaotic violence that back then was dedicated towards nihilism. So when I was developing Lila Griffin, I kind of went back to that. Well, I thought like, well, what if you kind of took that same level of just violent, chaotic violence incarnate, like that level of a, of like that level of character with that level of just, energy and intensity and rock has to drive a plot forward entirely on their own will but rather than caring about nothing like i used to let's have the character care about everything mm-hmm. to a level that's um, that they care to the point where it's almost broken them mm-hmm. it especially comes across in those first few pages where uh griffin is talking to uh basically the heads of state in that uh, courtroom scene and it it's very chaotic, but also at the same time, they're very passionate about every aspect of what they're talking about. And you can feel like everything matters, but they don't mind seeing it all burn if it means that, that 
the fascist regime goes down to. Griffin is a zealot and an extremist. Like, I do not call him here. Like, I've never been saying words like they are, like, they are an, they are an extremist. They are an ideological zealot. Um, they are, they have declared a crusade and either the society they found themselves in will burn or they will burn, but they, mm-hmm. but Griffin and this galactic society cannot coexist and one will destroy the other. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite thing by the end of the series is the whole crew in general, how by the end you've established all the dynamics firmly in a lot of ways. And I feel like as a whole, they make a, um, good good person like a person that that knows how to rebel right but but each one of them is a separate section of that person so by themselves they they have no limits in their one area and they need each other to kind of check themselves i definitely wanted to explore different elements like i really wanted um telica you know i kind of talked about this kind of you know chaotic um and like energy to griffin but really the sense of you know we talk about um, you know, so much of uh, it, so much of stories is fighting, you know, fascist empires. Um, I wanted to have it. So part of that was like, okay, let's have a character that takes that next step beyond. Let's show what real just like terrorist action against the fascist empire looks like from a protagonist. Um, and Telica was really, especially sorry, was really meant to represent that kind of um, traditional resistance, you know, that plucky mm-hmm. band of rebels. Um, who always fight those little wars. So Griffin, so I kind of want someone to go from that kind of regular Star Wars Rebels to Griffin's extreme go big or go home model of just radical, unpredictable change with science rather than trying to achieve specific societal change through violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of want, so really Telica goes under the most art going from really going from Griffin's hostage to someone who, if doesn't completely agree with their ideology, um, sees them as the best way to get the results that, that, that she's after. Yeah, she really does have the most full arc out of all the main characters. And it feels like she is the, the eyepiece, the mouthpiece for the reader too, in a lot of ways. For sure, for sure. She's definitely, in a lot of ways, the POV, just because Griffin is just too extreme not just like wild and out there but also is already a fully formed character you know um there's something um i saw this concept you talk about um flat character arcs which Mm -hmm. on the name of it doesn't sound good like why would you ever want a flat character arc but it describes um and really the video where i first heard this term was describing uh goku in dragon ball z yeah but it's turned but kind of a way to describe a character that's kind of already fully formed like, isn't a character searching for truth already has the truth, and it's about the world and other characters changing in response to this fully formed full core character. Mm-hmm. So I tried to kind of, you know, in that same way, like, Goku beats up bad guys, then bad guys change because they come around to Goku's way of thinking, and Goku doesn't really change. And I think, like, um, Griffin, Griffin's ideology and methods are the same in issue one as they are in issue 12. Um, At least in this first volume, she does not deter or waver in any way, shape or form from her goals and methods. So it's really about how does this 
very exact totalitarian empire deal with this absolute force of blind hate and chaos mm-hmm. and how do individual characters react to just their uh, world just being shattered by being just by Griffin just forcing themselves into their lives and, and then yeah, yeah. And then with, to, to kind of go back to what you're saying um, about each character representing different parts of rebellion uh, with Dao I kind of wanted to um, again, with the book's themes about science, I didn't want it to just to just be science for the sake of having cool stuff, but to have someone that put a little talk into scientific method, time that it takes, uh, the community element, uh, the long, you know, the importance of long-term data collection and experiments, and how even if it's just you know the fact that he has doodads in his brain show that it's really not realistic for one person to have mastered every science. Mm-hmm. And, and with him specifically too, there's a, re- there's an interesting debate that gets uh, brought up near the middle of the, I think of this run where they talk about um, the regime being scared of science and how like Griffin wants science to just kind of run wild and do whatever it wants. Like there's a, there's a really great line that made me laugh about Griffin wanting the AI to, to do, do like an AI robot apocalypse and like you really want that it's like well yeah it'd be fun <laughs> yeah and but at the same time there's there is that true fear of like there is at moments where the science goes a little too far for them and they kind of kind of pull their hand back real fast say oh oh did we did we make the right decision here so that particular robot um ai apocalypse is me getting on a little bit of me getting on my own particular weird soapbox because you know what I'm with Griffin. If I have to pick an, an apocalypse, yeah, AI apocalypse every time. I mean, it's, it's, it's the least where we don't have to be like, oh, well, it was all of our faults. <laughs> not even that. Not even fault. It's the only kind of apocalypse that ends with a new, a new more advanced life form still being on this planet. That's true. That is, radiation apocalypse bio apocalypse virus apocalypse weather apocalypse done kaput nothing after that ai apocalypse we're getting some sort of crazy wild robot society after that uh not to go too off the beam path of comics but have you ever read the book sea of rust i haven't um the whole the whole idea is about what happens after the the ai revolution and it is super fascinating i think you would really enjoy that yeah but um yeah, but all but yeah, just um, Griffin. Griffin says like Griffin's methodology is um, to cause chaos through science. You know, Dow is in a way uh, a weapon for Griffin to wield. Uh, they wield his mind and just to use and just you know and uh, it was fun doing the terraforming and really just mm-hmm. having uh, Dow build potentially society changing technology and Griffin distributing that to the universe. Um, which would definitely be something we'd want to explore uh, a lot more in potential future volumes is especially after the events of 11 and 12 where Mm -hmm. Griffin kind of dumps the reaches like 30 years of reach scientific secrets to the universe uh, really show um, I feel like especially after this first volume and everything uh, we've seen them do now like the next step if we get that next volume would be to really start exploring the world, the society, and how Griffin's actions have started radically changing it. Uh, and when it comes to the world of Griffin, um, where, did you start 
when you first rest- like when you first came up with the concept did you start with the idea that everything goes like every race all the kind of crazy science or did that come more with the art um with when you teamed up with your artist um i wish i had this on my bruno Hidalgo. like did, did you did you guys come up with the world together in that way or did you like no we're doing all of this uh, I mean, it kind of developed in its own way. I mean, I definitely kind of tried to keep it, you know, basic Star Trek rules. Like, they're, like humans are out in space. Like, all this kind of crazy technology is there. And there's just an untold number of alien species out there. So I tried to kind of, the same way Star Trek would just be, you know, episode to episode, kind of being like, hey, here's a new planet. Here's a new race. Here's a new being, new story, new method new science fiction mumbo jumbo that we're adding to uh the world um i kind of tried to approach it that same way just play it by year let the stories flow and just build the world piece by piece Mm. and you mentioned a few times that you're you want to try to make more volumes and you mentioned that you want to see what happens with griffin releasing all the secrets well how that would affect the world but do you do you want to explore if Griffin can evolve at all throughout the the future volumes? See if Griffin can change in any way, or do you think Griffin will always be this chaos? Just no, I think as depending on how long the story can go, uh, I think things would force Griffin to undergo a real character arc over a longer term story. But it might not be the kind of thing you would even see necessarily in the second volume. It might be yeah. something, you know, in the magical fantasy world where we get to do like a five volume story. Yeah, because even in this first volume, it's it's 12 issues. Even if it is 11 pages each, that's still a really long um, first volume. And you start, you know, when you first meet Griffin, it doesn't seem like Griffin literally cares about anything. And by the by the end, you, as you showed, as talked about before, you see that Griffin cares literally about everything, but at the same time, isn't doesn't care if they have to burn everything to take down what they think is evil. Griffin is very much a character based that came from kind of my own crisis of faith, mm-hmm. and that faith was in humanity as a species. Uh, I started developing Griffin in twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what could have caused me to suddenly and dramatically lose faith in the innate goodness of humanity? You know, honest- I think I think we may never know. But honestly, with Griffin as a as a whole, I mean, I think some of the some of the jokes and character dynamics are definitely of this age. But as a story. And as a character arc as a whole, I think this is, and I don't mean to, <laughs> to gas you up too much, but I really do think Griffin as a book is like an evergreen book. Oh, or thank you. That anybody that has a little rebellion in their heart in any way can read this book and see themselves somewhere in it. I'm, I'm really glad that, thank you. I, I am really glad to hear that. Um, with the reach, I try to make it not just like a one-to-one parallel uh, what's going on right now, but really try to, have them be kind of like the sum of all of humanity's sins mm-hmm. and especially having me aside um and i always feel like kind of griffin is humanity's sins coming back in like for vengeance mm-hmm. um but so i really tried to pull from like lots of like different sources and stuff like you know um like the work camp um that you saw with in uh telecast um so I, with um 
you know, the, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm tripping over my words a little oh, it's bit. it's fine. Um, with, it, when you see the, uh, the siege, uh, or the siege of Telika's world in the word camp, that was uh, mostly based off of the uh, forced famines in the Soviet Union under Stalin. So I pulled from that. Um, you know, the biological warfare, the fact when they just go down to a planet and just sneeze and cough and wait for the uh, populace to get sick, that was me going all the way back to you know, Montezuma and conquering the Aztecs, mm -hmm. which is also why um, uh, Bruno drew that whole world kind of uh, with a bit of a whole South American uh, influence, which I thought was really, um, you know, kind of like a Inca Mayan influence, which I thought was really fun uh, to have like a world full of llama people and bird people. Yeah, and with the rebellion too that shows up in the third, -ish, third, third and fourth issue, I believe, um, you you show how even like the uh, in a, a, a rebellion has to make sacrifices and in the end that also makes them kind of evil in ways because they think they then end up picking and choosing who they save and just and that was also me again trying to pull from history um letting history kind of be my one of my big influences um you know how many dozens of times throughout history do we have the noble rebellion leader wins and becomes just as bad a despot as the one they deposed. Mm -hmm. uh, so for as much as, uh, you know, especially, you know, from Star Wars onwards, rebellions and resistances like are just good. They're just blanket mm -hmm. good usually. And I just got, and, you know, I just kind of wanted to show the other side of that where, so or how many times where it's like the leader of that, of like, you know, the leader where like the top, tip top leader can usually be just as authoritarian, just as despotic, just waiting for their chance to take over. And I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's just been a thing that's happened so often in history that I wanted to uh, pay service to it in the story and, and this and kind it, of subversion of the resistance. Yeah. And as a reader, um, if you're not true, like it's, it's easy to uh, see yourself in a lot of the main characters and the quote unquote heroes of the tale. But if you're not honest with yourself, like if you are honest with yourself, you see yourself in the bad guys as well too, because as you said, you try to make it as a whole of humanity. And I mean, I, I have a hundred percent keep, I fall on my face daily of trying to learn and grow and everything, but I still see like my past self and some of this uh, in the resistance and the regime and stuff of like things I used to, hold as like virtues and that you realize as older you get some of those virtues are wrong and um and or corrupted in some ways and so being able to make your villains also relatable in the way of like oh yeah i see the bad parts of myself in the bad guys yeah um i tried to so that was definitely a line especially with the reach being such explicitly fascist i really wanted to make sure um I didn't fall into that kind of uh, that satire trap where mm -hmm. what you're trying to vilify ends up being champion, ends up being like championed. Mm -hmm. um, so that was also one of the reasons, um, you know, uh, even the villains uh, come from uh, marginalized background, come from some marginalized backgrounds, you know, um, was just trying to make it, uh, you know, just trying to figure out ways to have the villainous for to have this, terrible re fascist reach uh be imposing be intimidating 
uh, but not make them look cool for the people and I don't want enjoying this book. Yeah, and, and, and there's a good line near the end where someone, when the one of the regime goes, I didn't know, and, um, uh, and, the, and the character responds, oh, well, it's awesome that you didn't know, but that doesn't change that you were a part of it. Uh, uh, is that the uh, cool motive still genocide? AKA, yeah, 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 yeah. AKA, uh, I want, AKA, I should get an eyes, I should be, get, be getting an Eisner nom for best Brooklyn Nine-Nine reference. Oh, is that, is that, over, uh, like, I've seen a that's little a, of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. That's a joke. Uh, cool motive still murder. Oh, yeah. No, like, if there was, uh, like, there should be a best line category, and I would definitely give you that one. But no, that was definitely, um, and you know, that was, uh, another part of it was, Again, by having characters be so extreme, be so violent is their first, is their first, second, and third option. Be not, you know, not heroes, but galactic arsonists is, um, you know, I love stuff like Steven Universe and She-Ra um, where characters can evolve and grow when you get real redemption arcs and people. And I think that's such an important thing to do but griffin is griffin is just so much of my pure anger mm-hmm. and so much that I was just being like nah fuck it some people are just too goddamn evil and yeah. done too much to come back from and yeah i mean once you side with something so clearly like corrupt and evil it's hard to yeah. pull yourself out of it and feel like you were clean from it in any way yeah and in that particular scene was kind of our way of saying like no amount of sympathetic backstory, no amount of guilt can outweigh that this particular character was complicit and aided in a genocide in an absolutely genocidal campaign. Yeah. You can't guilt your way out of something like that. Yeah, we end up sometimes, especially now with a lot of uh, media and like entertainment today, we kind of try to justify our villains and even the real life ones in some ways. And um it becomes a it can become very gross really fast yeah and that was and again like i said i i think we need i think redemption and accepting being better is important uh but griffin is about being really fucking angry and letting mm-hmm. that anger out on some really evil people so anybody that so maybe so and that was kind of what i wanted to show especially with that friendly reach that I'll, uh that helps steady Stella during that jailbreak and Griffin just guts him anyway. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I actually felt really bad at that moment. <laughs> Good. Which is, Good. I think yeah, that's the point. Like the point is you're supposed to feel bad that Griffin still crosses that line because again, they're part of the evil. That was, uh, that was one of my favorite moments was just uh, uh, empathy for the in group justifies any atrocity against the out group. Yeah. Um, moving, moving to some Q and A's though. Um, yes. Other than being able to tell like the story you want to tell, what makes independent books attractive to you? I mean, to me, there really is something to be said for getting to create something from the ground up. Like I got to make something with the tone I wanted to make, with the politics I wanted to have, with a in violently insane non-binary space captain. Like I got no pushback on having a non-binary main character and a lesbian main villain and just 
you know, and steady Stella coming from an entire species of gender fluid fish people. Mm, that's such a good, that's such a good line. <laughs> I want that to be just a, a way of just being like, you know, so many things they use like, oh, we're going to use aliens as a metaphor for other things. And here's something where I'm like, this is just an entire species of that undergoes gender metamorphosis. That's not a metaphor for anything. That's just too, that's, I want to have something that just approach gender from just such an alien perspective that yeah. there is no metaphor. Yeah. And I love it. It's like one day we'll make a man out of you. He's, and he goes, when I turn 30, I, I, we get, we turn into females. <laughs> Neat. <laughs> yeah. It's cool. Okay. Let's Good keep going. You. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, moving from the independent, though, disregard any yeah. company or anything, what established character or world would you like to write in? Um, really, I love DC. Like, I am, like, I love Marvel, um, but really, I am just such a huge DC super fan. I mean, I spend so much of my free time just watching all the TV shows mm-hmm. and, watch, and watching all the movies and defending them on the internet more than I should. Uh, me too. Trust me. Um, me too. Oh, yeah. Um, but so really, and it's like, and you know what? I see those like, oh, which superhero character would you like to write? I see those on Twitter. I'm like, when it comes to these, I'm like, any of them. Yeah. Any of them. Because any one of them would be just a, would just be an entryway into what I really think is one of the absolutely most, one of the richest, fascinating, and intricate, creative, like, fictional settings I've ever encountered. Like, and- I really... So I really, yeah. uh, I really believe that if, when you really look at the Marvel and DC comic book universes, they're kind of absolutely staggering achievements of literary experiments. Oh yeah, hundred percent. We're gonna have a consistent continuity, run across dozens of titles, for decades across thousands of creators. Nothing comes close. And even There's if it only like worked- it. And if, even if it only works 60% of the time, that's still 60% of the time. There's absolutely nothing. There's no storytelling universe that operate at the scale and longevity of Marvel and DC. It is, yeah. for as much as we talk about, like, it is, the, as a whole, these superhero universes are absolutely stunning literary experiments and achievements. And And... I mean, this might be hard for some people to think about, but like the bigger it is, the more kind of quote unquote garbage will come out of it. But that doesn't negate how much more good things come out of it. Yeah. And sometimes garbage is fun. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes the bad books are fun and that's just yeah. truth. Um, I, I spend so much time watching great bad movies. Yeah. No, I, I get what you're saying. For, you ever seen that? Double Trouble starring Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman? It's a delight. I have not. But I mean, I grew up watching bad movies because I had no taste as a kid or a teenager. <laughs> um, uh, inside of comic books, but even outside of uh, comic books and just creative spaces, who was your biggest inspiration when you started? And are they still your biggest inspiration now or have you found new inspirations in this point? I think inside of comics, I would say my biggest inspirations in terms of like, I would say Brian K. Vaughn has been my biggest inspiration mm-hmm. in terms of indie comics. So in terms of all the comics I've ever read, I've written so far. Yeah. Um, uh, Grant Morrison has probably done the most to shape how I view comics as a medium. Mm-hmm. And then in turn, not that I've 
ever written a superhero comic yet, but knock on wood, I would say kind of how I mentally approach them, because why not? I spend way too much of the day thinking about how I would write superhero comics. Uh, I would say Mark Wade and Jeff Johns did a lot to shape how I think about approaching those kinds of stories. But really, I outside of comics, and I think where this really has influence, especially on how I write dialogue and try to have the rhythm of the characters go, um, like stuff like The Daily Show, uh, stand-up comedy, and shows like Archer and Venture Brothers have been huge, huge influences on me. Mm-hmm. I think you're saying about dialogue that oh, comedy really influences dialogue. I think that's super fascinating because people always take the kind of like the 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 run of the letters when it comes to entertainment, like comedy and horror, and they don't realize how many great writing things you can learn from those two genres that get neglected a lot in a lot of ways. And I think I comedy is so good about teaching people how to make natural dialogue. Oh yeah, I think it's I think it's more like I'm always trying to it's, you know, it's not naturalistic. It's almost like better than naturalistic. Mm-hmm. It's how mm-hmm. you wish people talked. Uh, and, you know, I hear from so many, uh, I hear from a lot of um, other writers and comics that though when they're writing a script, like the dialogue will be the last thing they do. Like they'll break down the scene, they'll come up on the panel descriptions and then they'll figure out the dialogue. And that's wild to me mm-hmm. because dialogue is what I start with. Mm-hmm. Like I write all the lines and then block out the panels for the like, to make to like make the lines stand out the most. That's really awesome. I ne- I I have never heard a writer really talk about it that way. You know, to me, it's like I like I almost need to see like the conversation run through my head first, and then I start breaking it down into panels after I have like the whole conversation. Um, and then the last question is, what's the best part of working with your collaborators? Like, what's the what? What do you think is your favorite part of collaborating with artists and colorists and letters and all that? We get to, I get to make comics. I mean, I'm a, I am just a writer. I can barely draw a stick figure. I cannot make comics on my own. That is the number one rule is that uh, if I want to make a comic, I have to have awesome collaborators that are like passionate, that like are working on something they can be passionate as well. So really it's like, there's so many just amazing artists out there. Like comic book artists are goddamn miracle wizards like they are fantastic like there's so many cool styles and tones and atmospheres that they can bring so to get to work with such talented people and get to help create more art is just is just really really cool and just as a writer to have it run through to like have it live in your head for so long to break it down and then when you get the pages back and it looks and it's done in a way you never even imagined and it'll look so much cooler than it ever did in your head. There's nothing like that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, Well, Ben, thank you so much for being on this episode and joining me for the podcast in general. Thank you for letting me read, Griffin, because it was a joy to read every issue. Uh, Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, Thank you so much for giving it a read and I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Um, You can... Uh, follow me at mostly on, uh, mostly on Twitter at, at Ben the Con. Uh, the entirety of Griffin uh, Galaxy's Most Wanted Volume 1, uh, issues 1 through 12 are all out now on Comixology. Each issue is only a dollar. And uh, what other stuff uh, should they be looking out for coming from you? 
So we are going to be doing a uh, digital collection of Griffin that'll be coming out soon, uh, which will be on Comixology. So that'll be the whole series, you know, in just one nice, easy download. And then uh, the next thing I'll have coming out is Renegade Rule, uh, which is uh, co-written by myself and Rachel Silverstein and drawn by drawn and colored uh, by Sam Beck. Uh, and that is being published by Dark Horse. Uh, it's going to be coming out sometime in uh, 2021. And it's about a uh, group of uh, queer gamer girlfriends uh, competing in nationals and to be champions of their favorite VR shooter. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, going to be uh, a real fun action comedy with some fun flirty romance. Uh, and, Sam, and Sam Beck is just drawn the absolute crap out of it. Like, Sam Beck is a superstar in the making. I can't wait to see the solicits for that and then add it to my saver when it comes around. I hope you enjoy it. Um, and in the description of this episode, you'll be able to find all of Ben's links. Um, you'll also be able to find links to help out with um, Black Lives Matter and anything and any other supports in that area. Um, there'll also be a link still for my friends at Uppercut and their community. They're doing Pride merch that does, um, I think, 15% to a charity. Um, and you can find the podcast on Twitter at Comic Books Matter, uh, Comic Books Pod, sorry, uh, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Comic Books Matter, Patreon at patreon.com slash Comic Books Matter. Uh, the email for the podcast is Comic Books Matter at Gmail. And leave a review on any podcast sites that you find us on because I realize I don't have any reviews and that would be great. And lastly, the last two things, uh, logo is made by my friend Steven, who's awesome. And if you ever see him, say thank you for the logo. And the theme is Join the Restaurant by David uh, Zizetsi, and I got it from freemusicarchive.com. Thank you all for listening to the show.